When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the Sunday Showcase on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated G for general audiences. Marky Witt's Audio Works proudly presents Three Christmas Trees, based on the short story of the same title by Juliana Horatia Ewing. This audio drama is performed by a full cast, starring Martin Beadle, Trina Duhart, Charlie Everly, Richard Gibson, Sharon Grunwald, Brian Jeffords, Jason Markiewicz, Lessa Nosko, Rachel Pulliam, Trisha Rose, Jay Silver, Patrick Viersba, and Kyle Wright. With graphic art by John Markiewicz and original musical score by Hayden Folker. This is a story of three Christmas trees. The first was a real one, but the child we are to speak of did not see it. He saw the other two, but they were not real. They only existed in his fancy. The plot of the story is very simple, and as it has been described so early, it is easy for those who think it's stupid to lay the book down in good time. Probably every child who reads this has seen one Christmas tree or more. But in the small town of a distant colony with which we have to do, this could not at one time have been said. Christmas trees were then by no means so universal even in England as they are now, and in this little colonial town they were unknown. Unknown, that is, till the governor's wife gave her great children's party at which point we will begin the story. The governor had given a great many parties in his time. He had entertained bigwigs and littlewigs, the passing military, and the local grandees. Everybody who had the remotest claim to attention had been attended to. The ladies had had their full share of balls and pleasure parties. Only one class of the population had any complaint to prefer against his hospitality. But the class was a large one. It was the children. However, he was a bachelor and knew little or nothing about little boys and girls. Let us pity rather than blame him. At last he took to himself a wife, and among the many advantages of this important step was a due recognition of the claims of these young citizens. It was towards happy Christmas tide that the governor's amiable and admired lady, as she was styled in the local newspaper, sent out notes for her first children's party. 
at the top of the notepaper was a very red robin who carried a blue Christmas greeting in his mouth and at the bottom, written with ADC's best flourish, were the magic words, a Christmas tree. In spite of the flourishes, partly, perhaps because of them, the ADC's handwriting, though handsome, was rather illegible. But for all this, most of the children invited contrived to read these words, and those who could not do so were not slow to learn the news by hearsay. There was to be a Christmas tree. It would be like a birthday party with this above ordinary birthdays, that there were to be presents for every one. One of the children invited lived in a little white house with a spruce fir tree before the door. The spruce fir did this good service to the little house that it helped people to find their way to it. And it was by no means easy for a stranger to find his way to any given house in this little town, especially if the house were small and white and stood in one of the back streets. For most of the houses were small and most of them were painted white. And back streets ran parallel with each other and had no names and were all so much alike that it was very confusing. For instance, if you had asked the way to Mr. So-and-so's, it is very probable that some friend would have directed you as follows. Go straight forward and take the first turning to your left, and you will find that there are four streets which run at right angles to the one you are in, and parallel with each other. Each of them has got a big pine in it, one of the old forest trees. Take the last street but one, and the fifth white house you come to is Mr. So-and-so's. He has green blinds and a servant. You would not always have got such clear directions as these, but with them you would probably have found the house at last, partly by accident, partly by the blinds and the servant. Some of the neighbors affirmed that the little white house had a name, that all the houses and streets had names, only they were traditional and not recorded anywhere, that very few people knew them, and nobody made any use of them. The name of the little white house was said to be Trafalgar Villa, which seemed so inappropriate to the modest, peaceful little home that the man who lived in it tried to find out why it had been so called. He thought that his predecessor must have been in the Navy, until he found that he had been an owner of what is called a dry goods store which seemed to mean a shop where things are sold which are not good to eat or drink, such as drapery. At last, somebody said that as there was a public house called the Duke of Wellington at the corner of the street, there probably had been a nearer one called the Nelson, which had been burnt down, and that the man who built the Nelson had built the house with the spruce fir before it, and that so the name had arisen. An explanation which was just so far probable that public houses and fires were of frequent occurrence in those parts. But this has nothing to do with the story. Only we must say as we have said before, and as we should have said had we been living there then, the child we speak of lived in the little white house with one spruce fir just in front of it. Of all the children who looked forward to the Christmas tree, he looked forward to it the most intensely. He was an imaginative child of a simple, happy nature, easy to please. His father was an Englishman, and in the long winter evenings he would tell the child tales of the old country, to which his mother would listen also. Perhaps the parents enjoyed these stories the most, 
To the boy they were new and consequently delightful, but to the parents they were old, and as regards some stories, that is better still. Father, what kind of bird is this on my letter? The bird is an English robin. It is quite another bird to that which is called a robin here. It is smaller and rounder and has a redder breast and bright dark eyes and lives and sings at home through the winter. And, oh, what is a Christmas tree? A Christmas tree is a fir tree, just such a one as that outside the door, brought into the house and covered with lights and presents. <laughs> Picture to yourself our fir tree lighted up with tapers on all the branches, with dolls and trumpets and bonbons and drums and toys of all kinds hanging from it like fir cones. <laughs> and on the tip-top shoot a figure of a Christmas angel in white with a star upon its head. Fancy! And fancy he did. Every day he looked at the spruce fir and tried to imagine it laden with presents and brilliant with tapers and thought how wonderful must be that old country, home, as it was called, even by those who had never seen it, where the robins were so very red and where at Christmas the fir trees were hung with toys instead of cones. It was certainly a pity that two days before the party, an original idea on the subject of snowmen struck one of the children who used to play together with their sleds and snowshoes in the back streets. The idea was this, that instead of having a commonplace snowman, whose legs were obliged to be mere stumps for fear he should be top-heavy, and who could not walk even with them, who, in fact, could do nothing but stand at the corner of the street holding his important stick and staring with his pebble eyes till he was broken to pieces or ignominiously carried away by a thaw, that instead of this, they should have a real, live snowman who should walk on competent legs to the astonishment and, happy thought, perhaps to the alarm of the passers-by. This delightful novelty was to be accomplished by covering one of the boys at the party with snow till he looked as like a real snowman as circumstances would admit. At first, everybody wanted to be the snowman, but when it came to the point, it was found to be so much duller to stand still and be covered up than to run about and work that no one was willing to act the part. At last, it was undertaken by the little boy from the fur house. He was somewhat small, but then he was so good-natured he would always do as he was asked. So he stood manfully still, with his arms folded over a walking stick upon his breast, whilst the others heaped the snow upon him. The plan was not so successful as they had hoped. The snow would not stick anywhere except on his shoulders, and when it got into his neck he cried with the cold, but they were so anxious to carry out their project that they begged him to bear it just a little longer and the urchin who had devised the original idea wiped the child's eyes with his handkerchief. And, with that hopefulness which is so easy over other people's matters, dared say that when all the snow was on, he wouldn't feel it. However, he did feel it, 
and that so severely that the children were obliged to give up the game and taking the stick out of his stiff little arms to lead him home. It appears that it is with snowmen, as with other men in conspicuous positions, it is easier to find fault with them than to fill their place. The end of this was a feverish cold, and when the day of the party came, the ex-snowman was still in bed. It is due to the other children to say that they felt the disappointment as keenly as he did, and that it greatly dampened the pleasure of the party for them to think that they had prevented his sharing in the treat. The most penitent of all was the divisor of the original idea. He had generously offered to stay at home with the little patient, which was as generously refused. But the next evening, he was allowed to come and sit on his bed and describe it all for the amusement of his friend. He was a quaint boy, this urchin, with a broad face and bright eyes and all the mischief in life lurking about him, till you could see roguishness in the very folds of his hooded winter coat of blue and scarlet. In his hand he brought the sick child's present, a dray with two white horses and little barrels that took off and on, and a driver with wooden joints, a cloth coat, and everything, in fact, that was suitable to the driver of a brewer's dray, except that he had blue boots and earrings, and that his hair was painted in braids like a lady's, which is clearly the fault of the doll manufacturers. like exactly like the fur outside your door just about that size and planted in a pot covered with red cloth it was kept in another room till after tea and then when the door was opened it was like a street fire in the town at night such a blaze of light candles everywhere and on all the branches the most beautiful presents i got a drum and a pen wiper was there an angel Oh, yes! It was on the tip-top branch, and it was given to me! And I brought it for you. If you would like it, for, you know... I am so very, very sorry I thought of a snowman and made you ill. I beg you to forgive me. And the roguish face stooped over the pillow to embrace his friend. And out of a pocket in the hooded coat came forth the Christmas angel. In the face it bore a strong family likeness to the drayman, but its feet were hidden in folds of snowy muslin, and on its head glittered a tinsel star. How lovely! Father told me about this. I like it best of all. And it is very kind of you, for it is not your fault that I caught cold. I should have liked it if we could have done it, but I think to enjoy being a snowman, one should be snow all through. They had tea together, and then the invalid was tucked up for the night. The dray was put away in the cupboard, but he took the angel to bed with him. And so ended the first of the three Christmas trees. Except for a warm glow from the wood fire in the stove, the room was dark. But about midnight, it seemed to the child that a sudden blaze of light filled the chamber. At the same moment, the window curtains were drawn aside, and he saw that the spruce fir had come close up to the panes and was peeping in. Ah, how beautiful it looked! It had become a Christmas tree! Lighted tapers shone from every familiar branch. Toys of the most fascinating appearance hung like fruit, and on the tip-top chute there stood the Christmas angel. 
He tried to count the candles, but somehow it was impossible. When he looked at them, they seemed to change places, to move, to become like the angel, and then to be candles again, whilst the flames nodded to each other and repeated the blue greeting of the robin. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year! Then he tried to distinguish the presents, but beautiful as the toys looked, he could not exactly discover what any of them were, or choose which he would like best. Only the angel he could see clearly, so clearly. It was more beautiful than the doll under his pillow. It had a lovely face, like his own mother's, he thought, and on its head gleamed a star far brighter than tinsel. Its white robes waved with the flames of the tapers, and it stretched its arms towards him with a smile. I am to go and choose my presents. Mother! Mother dear! Please, open the window! But his mother did not answer. So he thought he must get up himself, and with an effort he struggled out of bed. But when he was on his feet, everything seemed changed. Only the firelight shone upon the walls, and the curtains were once more firmly closed before the window. It had been a dream, but so vivid that in his feverish state he still thought it must be true and dragged the curtains back to let in the glorious sight again. The firelight shone upon a thick coating of frost upon the panes, but no further could he see. So with all his strength he pushed the window open and leaned out into the night. The spruce fir stood in its old place, but it looked very beautiful in its Christmas dress. Beneath it lay a carpet of pure white. The snow was clustered in exquisite shapes upon its plumy branches, wrapping the treetop with its little cross shoots, as a white robe might wrap a figure with outstretched arms. There were no tapers to be seen, but northern lights shot up into the dark blue sky, and just over the fir tree shone a bright, bright star. On the street below, a man known throughout the town as the Professor caught the attention of the young boy, and he called out from the window with whatever strength he could muster. A very Merry Christmas to you, sir! A Merry Christmas to you, young man! What are you doing, Professor? Why, I'm using this telescope to fix upon the planet Jupiter. It looks well tonight. Where is it? Uh, look above the horizon, just east of the church steeple. It's the largest and brightest star in the heavens tonight. Ah, <sighs> it looks to me like a Christmas angel. Why, yes, I believe it does. <laughs> now what are you doing up? Back to bed with you. Goodbye. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas! Now, get some sleep, my heart. Ah, good night, Mother. Good night. And so ended the second of the three Christmas trees. It was enough to have killed him, all his friends said, but it did not. He lived to be a man, and what is rarer, to keep the faith, the simplicity, the tender-heartedness, the vivid fancy of his childhood. 
He lived to see many Christmas trees at home in that old country where the robins are redbreasts and sing in the winter. There, a heart as good and gentle as his own became one with his, and once he brought his young wife across the sea to visit the place where he was born. They stood near the little white house, and he told her the story of the Christmas trees. Why, I remember this place as if I had only departed yesterday. Oh, this spruce tree was filled with magic. At least, I thought it was. I remember being sick one Christmas, after some of the neighborhood children turned me into a human snowman. Oh, I have such wonderful memories here. Oh, uh, don't mind me, my dear. This was when I was a child. <laughs> But that you are still, my love. And may that childlike innocence never leave you. Of the many things I love about you, this I love most of all. She plucked a bit of the fir tree and carried it away. He lived to tell the story to his children and even to his grandchildren. But he never was able to decide which of the two was more beautiful, the Christmas tree of his dream or the spruce fir as it stood in the loveliness of that winter night. This is told, not that it has anything to do with any of the three Christmas trees, but to show that the story is a happy one, as is right and proper, that the hero lived and married and had children and was as prosperous as good people in books should always be. Of course he died at last, the best and happiest of men must die, and it is only because some stories stop short in their history that every hero is not duly buried before we lay down the book. When death came for our hero, he was an old man. The beloved wife, some of his children, and many of his friends had died before him, and of those whom he had loved, there were fewer to leave than to rejoin. He had had a short illness with little pain, and was now lying on his deathbed in one of the big towns in the north of England. His youngest son, a clergyman, was with him, and one or two others of his children, and by the fire sat the doctor. The doctor had been sitting by the patient, but now that he could do no more for him, he had moved to the fire. And they had taken the ghastly, half-emptied medicine bottles from the table by the bedside, and had spread it with a fair linen cloth, and had set out the silver vessels of the supper of the Lord. The old man had been wandering somewhat during the day. He had talked much of going home to the old country, and with the wide range of dying thoughts, he had seemed to mingle memories of childhood with his hopes of paradise. At intervals he was clear and collected. One of those moments had been chosen for his last sacrament, and he had fallen asleep with the blessings in his ears. He slept so long and so peacefully that the son almost began to hope that there might be a change, and looked towards the doctor, who still sat by the fire with his right leg crossed over his left. The doctor's eyes were also on the bed, but at that moment he drew out his watch and looked at it with an air of professional conviction. I'm sorry, lad. I've done all I can. <sighs> He held on much longer than I thought he would. It's only a question of time. Then he crossed his left leg over his right 
and turned to the fire again. Before the right leg should be tired, all would be over. The son saw it as clearly as if it had been spoken, and he too turned away and sighed. As they sat, the bells of a church in the town began to chime for midnight service, for it was Christmas Eve, but they did not wake the dying man. He slept on and on. The doctor dozed. The son read in the prayer book on the table, and one of his sisters read with him. Another, from grief and weariness, slept with her head upon his shoulder. Except for a warm glow from the fire, the room was dark. Suddenly, the old man sat up in bed and in a strong voice cried with inexpressible enthusiasm. How beautiful! What, my dear father? The Christmas tree. Draw back the curtains. What do you see, father? What has captured your gaze so? Light. The angel. The star. Again, there was silence, and then he stretched forth his hands and cried passionately. The angel is beckoning to me. Mother, mother dear, please open the window. The sash was thrown open, and all eyes turned involuntarily where those of the dying man were gazing. There was no Christmas tree, no tree at all. But over the housetops, the morning star looked pure and pale in the dawn of Christmas Day. For the night was past, and above the distant hum of the streets, the clear voices of some waits made the words of an old carol heard, words dearer for their association than their poetry. When the window was opened, the soul passed, and when they looked back to the bed, the old man had lain down again, and like a child was smiling in his sleep, his last sleep. And this was the third Christmas tree. You've been listening to Three Christmas Trees. Appearing in this production was Martin Beadle as the father, Trina Duhart as Urchin, Richard Gibson as the child in his adult years, Brian Jeffords as the professor, 
Rachel Pulliam as the mother, Trisha Rose as the wife, Jay Silver as the old man, Patrick Viersba as the old man's son, and Jason Markiewicz as the doctor. Featuring Charlie Everly as the child, with Sharon Grunwald, Lessa Nosco, and Kyle Wright as the carolers. Original musical score was composed by Hayden Folker. Our festive cover art was designed by John Markiewicz. This production is copyrighted 2022 and was written, produced, and directed by yours truly. You can visit us on the web at www.markiewiczaudioworks.com. Follow us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and be sure to keep listening here as we bring you more audio theater experiences for lovers of classic fiction. This is Jason Markiewicz, wishing you all the merriest of Christmases and a safe holiday season wherever your listening adventures may take you. Happy holidays from all of us here at the Mutual Audio Network. Now, you seem to me to be a connoisseur of the best of radio drama. In which case, make sure you're subscribed to the Monday Matinee Feed. There we have our weekly series of dramatic, theatrical, classic, eclectic, and live radio drama. So yeah, either the main Mutual Audio Network feed for all types and genres of audio drama, or the Monday Matinee. And we'll see you there. The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together.